From the chapel of Holyrood House it was next conveyed with the same funereal pomp to Leith, thence it was transported to Burnt Island, and the day after it was met by the gentlemen of the county of Fife, of which he was a high sheriff, by whom it was accompanied to the family burying place at Leslie. The body was laid in the grave with sound of open trumpets, and the honors placed above the grave. This superfluity of display was common during the reign of Charles II at the funerals of the great. Under that reign it was a matter of policy in prosecution of the designs of the government for the establishment of absolute power to encourage every circumstance which could mark the distinction of ranks, and hence the nobility and gentry gratified their vanity not only by the splendor of their retinues but also by the extravagant pomp with which they conducted the funerals of their departed friends, as if they could thus keep up the distinctions of the rank and elevated station after the death had leveled them in the dust. Quote, Sorry preeminence of high descent above the vulgar born. End quote. Footnote. To such an extent, however, did this foolish vanity and absurd extravagance proceed, that the Parliament which met at Edinburgh September 13, 1681, passed an act restraining the exorbitant expenses of marriages, baptisms, and, bur- and burials. See the Acts of the Parliament of Scotland. End footnote. The Duchess had to the Duke two daughters, Lady Margaret and Lady Christian. Lady Margaret, the eldest, became on her father's death Countess of Ross, having inherited his extensive property in the counties of Aberdeen, Elgin, Fife, Forfar, Inverness, Kingarden, and Perth, and the Earldom of Ross, but not his other titles of Duke of Ross, Marquis of Ballenbrake, etc., which, being limited to the heirs male of his body, became extinct at his death. She was married in 1674 to Charles, 5th Earl of Haddington, the marriage contract being dated the 7th of October that year. The second daughter, Lady Christian, was married first to James, 3rd Marquis of Montrose, to whom she had issue, and afterward in 1687 to Sir John Bruce of Kinross, Baronet, to whom she had no children. Footnote, Douglas's Peerage, Volume 2, page 432. End footnote. Amid all her domestic trials, the Duchess found much comfort in her children, who, following her instructions and example, adorned the high stations they filled and were patterns to their sex. Her eldest daughter in particular, who succeeded the Duke, a lady of a cultivated understanding and of much practical wisdom, was almost unequaled in her day for the depth of her piety and the extent of her beneficence. Among the non-conforming ministers whom the Duchess befriended and patronized was Mr. Alexander Wedderburn, one of the most popular ministers of his day, who was ejected from Forgan in Fife after the Restoration, and who subsequently became indulged minister at Kilmarnock. Previous to his death, which took place about the close of October 1678, footnote, the illness which issued in his death was brought on by a thrust he received from the butt of the musket of a Highlander during the invasion of the West by the Highland host in 1678, at the time when he was interceding with these savages to spare the town of Kilmarnock, which they were resolved to plunder. His last illness continued about four months. End footnote. 
This excellent minister, having consented to the posthumous publication of a series of sermons which he had delivered upon 2 Samuel 23, 5, and which after his death were published partly from shorthand notes taken by some of the hearers and partly from his own notes, it was his desire that the volume should be dedicated to the Duchess. But as before its publication she had been removed by death, Mr. Wedderburn's widow, Helen Turnbull, dedicated it to the Duchess's daughter, quote, the truly noble Margaret, Countess of Roths, end quote, which she was induced to do not only in consideration of the Christian excellence of that lady, but also from respect to the memory of her sainted mother. And as a memorial of the Duchess, we now quote it. Quote, Madam, says Mrs. Wedderburn, before that pious and eminent person, the Duchess of Roths, your ladyship's renowned mother, was by death removed, I designed, according to the intention of my husband, who is now entered into the joy of his Lord, to dedicate this part of his labors to her grace. And now, when these papers, by advice of faithful and godly ministers, are to be exposed to public view, I judged it my duty to pay that respect to her grace's memory as to prefix your ladyship's name thereunto, which, no doubt, if my husband were alive, he himself would have done, which I the more confidently adventure upon as that I know your ladyship to be the lively portraiture of the graces and virtues of your noble and now glorified mother, and to be of such wisdom and prudence, humility and self-denial as to excuse anything of unsuitableness that may be in this for one of my station and sex. End quote. A few brief notices of Margaret, Countess of Ross, may form an appropriate sequel to the preceding sketch of her mother. Crawford describes her as, quote, a lady of incomparable piety and goodness, end quote. Footnote, Crawford's Peerage of Scotland, page 430, end footnote. And Wadrow speaks of her as that, quote, excellent lady who scarce had a parallel for religion and everything good in her age, end quote. Footnote, Wadrow's History, volume 3, page 300, end footnote. Having embraced the same religious sentiments as her mother, she was a friend to the persecuted Presbyterians of which the government were well aware. And as an instance of the arts resorted to to for depriving the sufferers of shelter from every quarter, it may be mentioned that the Privy Council, who found sheriff courts a powerful means of carrying on the persecution, persuaded that, on succeeding her father, she would appoint a sheriff depute for Fife, who would befriend the sufferers, had recourse to a most dishonorable expedient in order to deprive her of the power of appointing a substitute to hold such a court in her name. On the 6th of October, 1681, the Privy Council, quote, order intimation to be made to her by the Earl of Haddington that she cannot hold any sheriff court nor any in her name until she take the test. End quote. Quote, the Parliament in one of their acts, unquote, says Wadrow, quote, as we have seen, except the heirs of the Duke from some hardships of his nature. Footnote. Wadrow refers to the Act Concerning Public Debts, passed September 17, 1681, discharging such noblemen, barons, and burgesses as, quote, during the time of the late Troubles and Rebellion, to give their bonds for several great sums of money, end quote, quote, of the said debts and bonds granted thereupon, end quote, upon condition of their taking the tests, 
quote, accepting always the heirs, executors, and successors of the deceased Duke of Ross, late Lord Chancellor, who in respect of his eminent loyalty and service to His Majesty are hereby absolutely exonerated and discharged of the said debts without necessity of taking the aforesaid test upon the account aforesaid Ellenerly. End quote. End footnote. Yet the council urged this excellent lady with this oath as what they knew she would never take, that the offices might fall into the manager's hands. End quote. Footnote. Wadro's History, Volume 3, page 300. End footnote. The council succeeded in their design. Both the countess and the Earl of Haddington, her husband, refused to take the test. Accordingly, the sheriffdom of Fife was lodged in the hands of the Earl of Balcars, who in that same year appointed Alexander Malcolm sheriff deputy of that county, a man who proved as severe oppressor of conformity as the government could desire, subjecting such as refused to take the test to severe oppression by fines, imprisonment, and other kinds of suffering. Footnote. Quadro's History, Volume 3, page 390. End footnote. Wadrow, in his Analecta, under the year 1730, has preserved the following memorial of this lady. Quote, I am told that the late Duchess or Countess of Ross was one of the most extraordinary persons for religion and good sense, and eminent acts of charity that was in the last age, that her life, could it be recovered, would make a beautiful figure in our biography. I have little hope of recovering it. In the late dear years 1697 and 1698, she was remarkable for her charity. She distributed many bowls of meal among the poor every week, and it was calculated that she dealt out most of the yearly rent of the estate that way. She had a day in the week, Friday, I think, when sick and indisposed persons came to her, and she spoke with them and gave them medicines gratis and some cheats pretending to be objects of charity she discovered and severely punished them. She was most intimate with John Archer, Alexander's father, and many eminent Christians in that neighborhood. She was eminent in prayer and wrestling and had many singular answers of prayer. It's a pity so little about her can now be recovered. End quote. Footnote, volume 4, page 172. End footnote. The Countess died on the 20th of August, 1700. Sir James Stewart, Lord Advocate of Scotland after the Revolution, says in a letter to Principal William Carstairs, dated August 22nd, 1700, quote, The good Countess of Ross died Tuesday last, much regretted by all, and very deservedly. End quote. Footnote. Carstairs, State Papers, page 625. End footnote. She was succeeded by her eldest son, John, 7th Earl of Ross, who, like his predecessors for at least four gen preceding generations, was distinguished for the excellence of his Christian character. He died in 1722, in the prime of life, in the full assurance of faith. A few hours before his departure, he called his children one by one and took farewell of each of them, speaking to each in particular and to them all for nearly two hours with the greatest seriousness and solidity, recommending religion to them as what alone would avail them when about to pass from time into eternity. Footnote. Quadro's Correspondence, Volume 2, page 641. End footnote. 
The well-known Colonel Blackadder, who was present with him at the last, says that he never witnessed so Christian, calm, and courageous a death. The Colonel drew up an account of his deathbed scene, which is printed from the Wadrill Manuscript in the Christian Instructor for November 1825. In the preceding notices of the Duchess of Roths, of her predecessors and descendants, it is interesting and instructive to see piety passing downward from parents to children for five successive generations. This we are no doubt to trace to the sovereign grace of God, for genuine religion is not transmitted from parent to child as a healthy constitution is transmitted, but it is also to be traced to the instrumentality of parents, and particularly of religious mothers in the godly upbringing of their children. The Duchess of Roth's mother, the Duchess herself, her daughter, and her son all enjoyed the benefit of the religious instructions, the persevering prayers, and the holy example of godly mothers. To the pious endeavors of both parents to instill the principles of piety into the minds of their children, God has annexed a special blessing. But it may be expected in particular that the labors of Christian mothers in this good work will be followed by the happiest effects. From their offspring, being in infancy, constantly under their care, and afterward in childhood and youth, more frequently in their society than in that of the other parent, mothers have a more powerful influence than fathers in forming their character. And how often, as must be known to all who are but slightly acquainted with Christian biography, have those who have been distinguished in their day for piety and extensive usefulness in the church and in the world had to trace their piety and their usefulness to the instructions, counsels, and admonitions they had received in their first and more tender years from their God-fearing mothers. Lady Mary Johnston, Countess of Crawford Lady Mary Johnston was the eldest daughter of James, Earl of Annandale and Hartfell, by his wife, Lady Henrietta Douglas, daughter of William, first Marquis of Douglas, by his second wife, Lady Mary Gordon. She was married at Leith on the 8th of March, 1670, to William, 16th Earl of Crawford and 2nd Earl of Lindsay, the son of John, Earl of Crawford and Lindsay, of whom some notices have already been given, and brother to the Duchess of Roths the subject of the preceding sketch. Footnote. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, pages 74 and 387. End footnote. Her husband, like his parents, was a nonconformist and great deference was paid to him by the Presbyterians. On this account, he was, throughout the period of the persecution, a marked man, and from the danger to which he was exposed... He once intended to go abroad, though he never went, but lived in retirement till the revolution which brought him deliverance and honor. Footnote. He was appointed by King William, President of the Parliament, a Commissioner of the Treasury, and one of the Commission for Settling the Government of the Church. He was a man of great political sagacity, and the most active agent in effecting the overthrow of prelacy at the revolution. His correspondence during that eventful, eventful period has been printed in the Melville and Levin papers. His letters, says Lord Lindsay, who is not disposed to overrate his merits, bear the stamp of burning and enthusiastic sincerity while in point of taste. Though abounding in scriptural images, they are unusually graceful and free from cant, and the impression they leave is more favorable to him than might have been expected. Lord Lindsay's Lives of the Lindsay's, Volume 2, page 174. 
End of footnote. The early education and family connections of this lady tended to prejudice her mind against the suffering of covenanters, but her marriage into a family distinguished at once for their warm attachment to that persecuted body and for personal piety was followed by a great change upon both her personal character and religious sentiments. She became at one and the same time a genuine Christian and a true blue, true blue Presbyterian. The instrument of effecting this change upon her was Mr. John Welsh, a minister almost unequaled in the times of persecution, for the Christian intrepidity which he jeoparded his life on the mountains and in the moors of Scotland in his ardent and indefatigable zeal to proclaim to his fellow countrymen the unsearchable riches of Christ and whose intrepid labors of love were blessed by the Spirit of God for turning multitudes from disobedience to the wisdom of the just. In the beginning of the year 1674, the first three months of which, as we have seen, were called the blink, from the little molestation then offered to the ejected ministers in holding conventicles, whether in houses or in the field, Welsh went over from Edinburgh to Fife with his wife, where he spent about six weeks in preaching, none presuming, presuming either to pursue him from Edinburgh or to lay hands on him in Fife. Not even Sharp, who had his residence in that part of the country, and who of all others most thirsted for his blood. Footnote. None was so busy as Mr. John Welsh, who this spring, 1674, made a perambulation over Fife, and there, in vacant churches and sometimes in the fields at Glendale and Darakohar and other places, gathered sometimes armies together for which the gentry and the people both smarted very sore. Crypton's History, page 344. End footnote. During that period, Welsh had large meetings both on the Sabbath day and on weekdays at which many of the gentry, attracted by the weight of his character and by his homely but powerful eloquence, were often present, the most of whom seemed to be impressed by the word and favorably disposed to the work in which he was engaged. Footnote. Blackadder's Memories, Manuscript Copy. The same writer says, He, Welsh, was attended from place to place with companies of gentlemen and others, with great respect and applause. The council, says Kirkton, set a price upon Mr. Walsh's head, and for that he never rode without a guard of horsemen, sometimes more, sometimes less, but seldom exceeding the number of ten horsemen. Kirkton's History, page 380. End footnote. It was at this time that Lady Crawford had an opportunity of hearing him preach for the first time in the neighborhood of her own residence, Struthers House. Footnote. Strutters, or as it is called in some old papers, Auchter Other Strutter, was formerly the seat of the Earls of Crawford. It is now in ruins and stands about two miles southwest from the village of Sears, Fifeshire. Its towers and battlements gave it a venerable and a sort of warlike appearance, but of this once splendid house there now exist very scanty remains. The park around the house, says the old statistical account of Scotland, which is enclosed with a stone wall, contains about 200 acres of ground. There are a good many trees in different places of the park, particularly some venerable beeches of a very large size. But in the new statistical account of Scotland, it is said that these venerable beeches have died or been cut down. End footnote. 
and his discourse, accompanied by the influence of the Divine Spirit, was the means of turning her from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. From that day she became an altered person. The pride of her heart was humbled, so that, like Mary in the Gospel, she sat at Jesus' feet, a teachable disciple, listening to his voice, and in the whole of her subsequent deportment she exhibited the living marks of a child of God. Now indeed she had not many years to live, but during the brief course allotted to her on earth she exemplified in an eminent degree the power of vital godliness. In her character were combined the devotion of the saint and the resolution of the martyr. Previous to her hearing Welsh, she attended the curates without scruple, but after that no arguments and no menaces employed by her relatives could prevail upon her to go and hear them and she embraced every opportunity within her reach of attending field conventicles. In her the persecuted, the poor, and the suffering found a sympathizing friend. Footnote. Mr. John Carstairs, in a letter to the Earl of Crawford, dated May 2, 1678, says, quote, I take it for granted your lordship's excellent lady and sister covet most the relief of Christ's oppressed interests, and that your endeavors therein will be most acceptable and satisfying, as I hope your brother's sweet lady also doeth. End quote. Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 59, Folio Number 78. End footnote. The vast change she had undergone, her relatives and acquaintances did not fail to observe, and her Christian friends were struck with the rapidity with which she advanced in all the graces of the Spirit, outstripping many who had preceded her in their entrance on the Christian course. Her husband, who loved her with the tenderest affection, was improved in character by the imitation of her virtues, and econiums upon her worth were extorted even from enemies. Of this lady, Mr. John Blackadder has preserved an interesting memorial in his memoirs written by himself. After narrating Walsh's visit to Fife in the beginning of the year 1674 and referring to the many memorable effects of the power and wisdom of God manifested at that time by the labors of that eminent minister of which he gives some example he says quote, among others I must notice to the commendation of the grace of God that in that instance concerning Countess Crawford then called Lady Lindsay footnote her husband was then only Lord Lindsay he did not become Earl Crawford till his father's death which took place in 1676 End footnote. Lady Lindsay, daughter to the Earl of Annandale by Duke Hamilton's sister, whose education was more likely to have alienated her from that way than to ingratiate it to her, she coming to one of these great meetings at Duraclaher near Cupar and near to her own house, she, by a special cast of God's power, had been induced, among others, to come forth one of these great Sabbaths at Duraclaher, where it is estimated there were about seven or eight thousand persons present, present, and much of the power of God appeared to the shaking the consciences and awakening the hearts of the generality for the time, and leaving a lasting impression on others, among whom this truly honorable lady was one, who declared she was constrained to close with the offer that was made in that great day of the gospel, which was made known to many by manifest fruits of piety, showed forth in all her walk as a Christian and dutiful yoke-fellow to her Lord, who always received good impressions of that day's work, 
and the like form, her very report of the Lord's gracious presence and good she found to her soul that day, which the writer hereof also had from herself with great majesty and seriousness in the presence of her Lord, who hath since also been helped to carry as a Christian in the exercise of piety and righteousness, whereof he hath given a good proof in dispensing his estate to pay his father's creditors, having very little to himself. Footnote. He made his non-entailed property responsible for payment of his father's debts, that, to use his own words, quote, the memory of so good a man and so kind a father might not suffer by the neglect of a son that owed all things to him in gratitude as well as duty. End quote. Melville and Levin Papers, page 259. Mr. John Carstairs, in his epistle dedicatory to Durham's sermons on Isaiah 53, addressed to the Earl of Crawford, also speaks in commendation of his lordship's Christian and exemplary conduct in, quote, choosing rather contentedly and satisfiedly to be, if it so please the Lord, and oh, oh that it may not, the last of that ancient and honorable family, than to be found endeavoring to keep it from sinking by any sinful and unwarrantable course, particularly by defrauding just creditors, though the debt was not of your lordship's own contracting under whatever specious pretexts and advantages of law, whereof many make no bones, who, if they may keep up their superfluities, care not to ruin their friends engaging in suretyship for their debt, and to live on the substance of others. End quote. Carstairs adds, quote, With great satisfaction I notice how much your lordship makes it your business to follow your noble ancestors insofar as they were followers of Christ, which many great men, even in the Christian world, alas, do not much mind, not considering that it is true nobility where God is the chief and top of the kin, and where religion is at the bottom. End footnote. Having very little to himself, and steadfast soundness in the public cause of reformation with as much tenderness and keeping at a distance from all steps of defection as many of whom more might have been expected, and that to this day, after the day of this lady's conversion to the Lord and singular reformation, she could never be induced by all the insinuations and threats of her near and noble relations to go back again to the prelatic preachers and their assemblies, or to countenance any of the prelates or curates as she had done, but frequented all occasions of preaching at these persecuted meetings she could conveniently win at. She lived and died endeavoring to adorn her profession by a conversation becoming the gospel even to the stopping the mouths of gainsayers. What is here declared as to this memorable instance and effect of the grace and power of Christ manifested to this lady, I am without fear of any man's disapproving, beside many the like to others at these persecuted meetings, called by many in this degenerate generation unlawful conventicles. End quote. Footnote. Blackadder's Memoirs, Manuscript Copy. See also Dr. Crichton's Printed Copy, page 167. End footnote. Lady Crawford died in the year 1682 in the prime of life. This we learn from the epistle dedicatory prefixed by Mr. John Carstairs to Durham's Sermons on Isaiah 53. Footnote. She had issue to the Earl three sons, the eldest of whom was John, 17th Earl of Crawford, and a daughter, Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 387. 
End footnote. It is addressed, quote, unto all afflicted and cross-bearing serious Christians, and more particularly to the right honorable and truly noble Lord William, Earl of Crawford, end quote, and is dated November 15, 1682. After adducing and illustrating a variety of reasons why the people of God should, quote, sweetly submit themselves to his will in all things, how cross soever to their own inclination, unquote, he says, quote, let them all, my noble Lord, prevail with your Lordship in particular, reverently to, to adore, silently to stoop unto, and sweetly to acquiesce in the Lord's sovereign, holy, and wise ordering your many and various complicated trials, and more especially his late removing your excellent lady, the desire of your eyes, the Christian and comfortable companion of your youth, by his stroke. End quote. In the same dedication, Carstairs bears testimony to the distinguished piety of this lady in these words, quote, I am, my noble Lord, the more easily prevailed with and encouraged to address the dedication of these sermons to your Lordship, more particularly when I remember the unfeigned faith that first dwelt in your grandmother as another Lois, and in your mother as another Eunice. Footnote, 2 Timothy 1.5 End footnote and more lately in your own choice lady, who is another beloved Persis, loved much in the Lord. Footnote, Romans 16, verse 12, end footnote. And though she had but a very short Christian race, in which she was much encouraged by coming into your noble father's family, and her beholding how your blessed mother did run and press toward the mark, even when in the last stage, and turning in a manner the last stoop of her Christian course. Yet it was a very swift one wherein she did quite outrun many that were in Christ long before her. All three ladies of honor, almost, if I need to say almost, without parallels in their times, in serious and diligent exercise of godliness and patterns worthy to be imitated by others. End quote. Carstairs adds, quote, and the same unfaith faint the same unfeigned faith dwells, I trust, in your lordship also, yea, and in several others of your elder and younger noble relations. For grace hath such a draught of souls amongst you, as it useth not often to have in societies of so noble extract, for not many noble are called. End quote. The loss of this amiable and pious lady gave a severe shock to the feelings of the earl. Carstairs, who knew the intensity of his grief, addressed himself to the task of administering comfort to his wounded heart. Quote, Let all mutinous thoughts about his dealings with you be silenced with, It's the Lord. Let not too much dwelling on the thoughts of your affliction to the filling of your heart still with sorrow inca incapacitate you for nor divert you from humbly asking the Lord what he aims at all by what he aims at by all these dispensations, what he would have you to learn out of them, what he reproveth and contends for, what he would have you amending your hands in, and what he would have you more weaned, self denied, and mortified in, and what he would have you a further length and greater proficient in. He hath told you the truth that these things are expedient for you. Study to find them to be so in your experience. 
Sure, he hath by them written in great legible and capital characters, yea, even as with a sunbeam, vanity, emptiness, uncertainty, mutability, unsatisfactoriness, and disappointment upon the forehead of all creature comforts, and with a loud voice called your lordship, yet more seriously than ever, to seek after solid soul satisfaction in his own blessed and all-sufficient self. End quote. And after observing that, quote, it is the scattering of our expectations and desires of happiness among other objects beside him that breeds us all our disquiet, anxiety, and vexation, unquote, he adds, quote, there are some whom he loveth so well that he cannot, to speak so, find in his heart to see them thus to parcel out their affections and to dote upon any painted imaginary happiness in creature comforts. And therefore, in design, he doth either very much blast them as to the expected satisfaction from them, or quite remove them, that by making such a vacuity he may make way for himself to fill it, and happily to necessitate the person, humbly, prayerfully, and believingly, to put him to the, fil- to the filling of it. And it is a great vacuity that he who fills heaven and earth cannot fill a little of whose gracious presence and manifested special love can go very far to fill up the room that is made void by the removal of the choicest and the most desirable of all earthly comforts and enjoyments. Happy they who, when they lose a near and dear relation or friend or any idol they are fond of, are helped of God to make Jesus Christ, as it were, succeed to the same as its heir by taking that loss as a summons to transfer and settle their whole love on him, the object incomparably most worthy of it, as being altogether lovely or all desires. Canticles 5, verse 16. The Earl afterward married for his second wife, Lady Henrietta Seton, only daughter of Charles, second Earl of Dunfermline, by his wife, Lady Mary Douglas, third daughter of William, Earl of Morton. Footnote. Douglas Peerage, Volume 1, page 482. End footnote. She was the relict of William, 5th Earl of Wigton, to whom she was married at Dalgety in September 1670, whom she lost by death on the 8th of April 1681, and to whom she had issued two sons and a daughter. Footnote. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 2, page 637. End footnote. To the Earl of Crawford she had a son and six daughters. Like his former countess, this lady was a woman of genuine piety as well as of Presbyterian principles. And like other ladies of nobility and honor, she had her own share in the sufferings of those evil times. She first suffered in her two sons by her first husband being taken from her and committed to a teacher to be educated in prelacy or popery. And when she went to Edinburgh to complain to the government to make application for having him restored to her, her complaint and request were disregarded. In a paper entitled Grievances for Scotland, 1661-1688, to the following is included as a grievance. Quote, The threatening to take children from parents to breed them papists and actually taking my Lord Wigton and his brother. My Lady Crawford, their mother, came over to Edinburgh in great grief and perplexity a few weeks before her delivery, but was harshly handled by the Chancellor, and on her soliciting the Lords of Council for recovery of her children out of his hands, no man would open his mouth for her. End quote. Footnote. Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 40, Folio Number 3, 
In another paper entitled Grievances for Scotland, this grievance is thus stated, quote, the imposing of a naughty the imposing of naughty persons to govern children as one imposed on my Lord Wigton and his brother who after betrayed them to the Chancellor. Ladro Manuscripts, Volume 40, Folio Number 7 End footnote And yet this treatment of her children was in glaring violation of the law. There was indeed at that period a standing law against Presbyterians being employed as chaplains or pedagogues in families, or as teachers in schools, or as professors in colleges, conformity to prelacy being an essential qualification for all such situations. But to abstract children from their parents and to commit them to teachers for the purpose of their being trained up in prelacy or popery was warranted by no statute even at that time when the throne was a throne of iniquity and when mischief had been so extensively framed by law. After the accession of James VII to the throne, so gloomy were the anticipations of this lady as to the future state of matters in Scotland that she became very desirous of going abroad. In a letter to a friend dated September 18, 1685, speaking of the considerations which induced him to leave Scotland, as well as of the difficulties in the way, the Earl says, quote, the things that prompt me to go are first a passionate desire in a most dutiful, most affectionate, and singularly good wife, who is really disquieted with apprehensions of sad things that are coming on Scotland. Now, when I consider the composedness of her temper for ordinary, I have sometimes looked on this restlessness in her spirit to be gone as a warning from God that I should retire. End quote. Footnote, Wadrow's History, Volume 4, page 513. Barbara Cunningham, Lady Caldwell. Barbara Cunningham was descended from the Cunninghams of Cunningham Head in Ayrshire, one of the most ancient and powerful cadets of the Glencairn family, which possessed at one time large properties in Lanarkshire and even in Midlothian, as well as in Cunningham, but which began to decline about the end of the 17th century. Footnote. Robertson's Ayrshire Families, Volume 1, page 303. End footnote. Her ancestors early distinguished themselves as warm promoters of the Reformation from Popery. Her great-grandfather, William Cunningham of Cunningham Head, who joined the lords of the congregation and maintained with ardent zeal the cause for which they erected their standard, sat in the memorable Parliament of August 1560, which approved and ratified the Confession of Faith and abolished the jurisdiction of the Pope throughout the Kingdom of Scotland. His name appears at the most important public document of the Scottish Reformers as at and contract of the lords and barons to defend the liberty of the Evangel of Christ in, 16, in 1560. At the Book of Discipline, which he subscribed January 27, 1561, as one of the members of the Privy Council, and at the famous band for the support of the Reformed religion in 1562. He was a member of the Assembly of 1565, which was so obnoxious to Queen Mary and the Roman Catholics and was one of five commissioners sent to the Queen by that assembly with certain articles, the first of which was that the Mass and all papistical idolatry and jurisdiction should be universally abolished throughout the realm, humbly desiring her to ratify and approve of the same in Parliament. 
Footnote. Robertson's Ayrshire Families, Volume 1, page 305. Knox's History, Wadrow Society Edition, Volume 1, page 366. And Volume 2, pages 61, 258, 349, 486. Robertson is mistaken when he says that the Laird of Cunningham, who was a member of the Assembly of 1565, was Barbara Cunningham's great-grand-uncle John Cunningham, brother to her great-grandfather William Cunningham. It was her great-grandfather himself who was a member of that assembly. He died in January 1576. End footnote. Her father, Sir William Cunningham of Cunningham Head, succeeded his father, John, about the year 1607 and was created a baronet in 1627. He was twice married, first in 1619 to Elizabeth, daughter of Mr. Thomas Nicholson, commissary of Aberdeen, by whom he had Sir William, who succeeded him. Footnote. His son, Sir William, who succeeded him, like his daughter Barbara, suffered not a little during the persecution, as we learn from Wadrow's history. Besides being fined by Middleton's Parliament in 1662 above 200 pounds sterling, he was imprisoned for several years in Stirling Castle. He died in 1670. End footnote. And Barbara, the subject of this notice, he had several other children of this marriage, but they all died either unmarried or without issue. He married, secondly, Lady Margaret Campbell, daughter of Lord Loudon, but of this marriage there was no issue. He died about the year 1640. Footnote. Robertson's Ayrshire Families, Volume 1, pages 306 to 308. End footnote. Barbara Cunningham was married in 1657 to William Muir of Caldwell. Footnote. Fountain Hall's Decisions of the Lords of Session, etc., Volume 2, page 558. William had succeeded his brother James, who died without issue in 1654. Crawford's History of Renfrewshire, Robert's Edition, page 307. End footnote. And hence, by the courtesy of the time she was usually styled, Lady Caldwell. This quote, honorable and excellent gentleman, unquote, as he is called by Wadrow, zealously adhered to the ministers ejected in 1662, and was among the first who left off attending the ministry of the intruded curates. On the ejectment of Mr. Hugh Walker, the minister of Neilston, from his charge by the act of the Privy Council at Glasgow in 1662, Muir of Caldwell, who resided in that parish, ceased to attend the parish church for which he was in some danger of being involved in trouble. Mr. John Carstairs, in a letter to Lady Ralston, dated, dated March 6, 1663, says, quote, The people here and in the parts about are likely to be sorely put to it if the Lord do not graciously prevent. They imprison some of them for not hearing both in this town and elsewhere. The Lord Cochrane is very zealous in this good cause. Some of the Neilston parishioners are in prison at Paisley on that account, and Caldwell was cited by the Lord Chancellor to appear before the Council at Edinburgh because he would not promise to hear afterward. He should have appeared yesterday, but he got the first day put by. Whether he will get his appearance shifted altogether, I know not. I heard, and it seems by that same zealous man's means, that some din was made to the Lord Chancellor about Caldwell Dunlop and the Lairds 
keeping meetings together at Paisley. Footnote, the Laird being the Laird of Ralston. End footnote. Some were afraid the Chancellor would have called for the Laird, but I have heard nothing since. It's like it will evanish and settle down again. End quote. Footnote, Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 45, Number 52. End footnote. Lady Caldwell, being of similar ecclesiastical principles with her husband, no doubt acted in a similar manner. The sufferings of this lady in the cause of religion and liberty may be said to have commenced in the year 1666, after the unsuccessful attempt of the Covenanters at Pentland Hills. Her husband and a few gentlemen in the West, having gathered together a small company of horsemen, amounting to about fifty, intended to join the Covenanters under Colonel Wallace, who were then near Edinburgh. But being informed, after proceeding a short way on their journey, the General Dalziel was between them and their friends, they dispersed. Caldwell, who was captain of that little band, soon, uh, soon after found it necessary to provide for his safety by flight, and concealing himself for some time, he succeeded in getting safely over to Holland, where, like many others of his expatriated countrymen, he found a secure retreat, but from which he never returned to his native land. Meanwhile, he was prosecuted by His Majesty's advocate before the Lord's justiciary for high treason simply because he had been on the road to join those in arms and on the 16th of August 1667 being found guilty of treason by a jury in his absence he was sentenced to undergo capital punishment and to be demeaned as a traitor when he should be apprehended and all his lands tenements annual rents offices titles tax dignities steadings rooms, possessions, goods, and gear whatsoever were declared to be forfeited to His Majesty's use. Footnote. These proceedings were unquestionably illegal, for, quote, all processes of forfeiture before the Justice Court in absence were contrary to the Act 90th, Parliament 11, James VI, end quote. Morrison's Dictionary of the Decisions of the Courts, the Court of Session, Page 4695. The government, well aware of this, had recourse to an expedient to secure themselves and gave validity to these proceedings. With this view, an Act of Parliament was passed, post facto, in 1669, ratifying these forfeitures and declaring them legal where it is for rising in arms and perduellian. Wadro's History, Volume 2, page 140. Fountain Hall's Decisions, Volume 2, page 558. End footnote. On the 12th of October, the Privy Council appointed James Dunlop of Househill to uplift Muir of Caldwell's rents for the year 1667, and bygone terms since the rebellion and in future years, and to take an exact inventory of his whole movable goods and gear. His excellent estate, it is said, was at this time promised to General Dalziel, as a reward to the general for his success in suppressing the Pentland insurrection. It was not, however, actually gifted to him till July 11, 1670, when Charles granted in his favor a charter under the great seal of the Kingdom of Scotland, in due form, disposing to him his heirs and assignees whatsoever, in perpetuity the lands of Muir of Caldwell, and every means was taken to render the gifts secure. On the 22nd of August, 1670, 
an act of Parliament was passed ratifying the royal grant and giving validity to all steps taken to secure the estate to him and his heirs in perpetuum, and on the 8th of October that same year he was infested in the estate. Footnote. Proceedings of Parliament, February 20th, 1707, in Acts of the Parliament of Scotland, Volume 11, page 103. End footnote. These proceedings against Muir of Caldwell, it is obvious, could not but deeply strike against Lady Caldwell. By the sentence of, a forfe- of forfeiture pronounced upon him, she, though not the object avowedly aimed at, suffered in fact as much as he suffered himself. It affected the temporal comfort of herself and her children as much as it affected his. While he remained lurking in the country, she had to endure the anxiety arising from the danger to which he was exposed of falling into the hands of the government. And during that time, or after he had made his escape to Holland, she suffered, previous to joining him, many hardships at home. The work of spoliation by Dalziel and his associates was then going on at the house and on the property of Caldwell under her own eye. Of the extent to which the work was carried, some idea may be formed from a list of the losses she had sustained during the persecution, contained in the libel and the action she and her daughter brought against the grandson of Dalziel before the court of session after the revolution claiming reparation. This list enumerates the loss of quote, 36 milk and yield cows at 20 pounds per piece, which belonged to William Muir of Caldwell and were in his own possession in the year 1666. A great gelding worth 50 pounds sterling. Four other horses at 100 pounds per piece. Together with the whole growth of the mains of Caldwell, the said crop 1666, both corn and fodder to the value of 2,000 merks, 50 balls of meal, lying in the gurnals at the said time at ten merks per ball. The whole plenishing utensils and domiciles to the value of three thousand merks. Three terms rent preceding Martinmas, 1667, of the said estate of Caldwell, extending to ten thousand five hundred merks, intromitted with by the said General Thomas Dalziel before he obtained the gift of Caldwell's forfeiture. Three haystacks standing in the cornyard of the said mains of Caldwell at 100 merks per piece. The whole growth of little mains, which was in the Lady Caldwell's elder. Footnote. William Muir of Caldwell's mother. End footnote. Her own hands with the corn and fodder and a haystack extending to the value of 550 pounds, Scots. End quote. Footnote. Proceedings of Parliament, February 20th, 1707. In Acts of the Parliament of Scotland, Volume 11, Appendix. End footnote. In the same document, it is stated that General Dalziel, at Martinmas 1666, intromitted with and took away from Lady Caldwell the furniture of the House of Caldwell. At last, Lady Caldwell went over to Holland to join her husband, who, it appears, had taken up his residence in Rotterdam. Whatever might be her outward temporal circumstances while in Holland, she and her husband were protected in their life and property. They were allowed without restriction to worship God according to the dictates of their conscience. And they enjoyed a select and congenial society in those excellent ministers and laymen with their wives who from similar causes had been under the necessity of taking shelter in that country from the fury of persecution. 
Both of them, as we learn from the correspondence of that period, were, during their exile, very highly esteemed by these refugees. Robert McWard not only describes Muir of Caldwell as a man of great intelligence and remarkable for the elegance and felicity of language with which he expressed himself on ecclesiastical and religious subjects, but assigns him the first place in his day among the pious gentlemen of Scotland. Quote, As a companion, unquote, says he, quote, we had but one Caldwell among all the gentlemen I knew or yet know in Scotland. End of quote. Footnote, Wardrow Manuscripts, Volume 58, Folio Number 74, End of Footnote. And speaking of Lady Caldwell, he says, quote, Who did also cheerfully choose to be his fellow exile and companion in tribulation, as she desired to be in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. End quote. Footnote, Wardrow Manuscripts, Volume 68, Folio number 23. End footnote. But she had not resided long in Holland when she was afflicted with the loss of her husband, who died at Rotterdam on Wednesday, the 9th February, 1670. His death, as was believed, having been hastened by the grief he felt on account of the calamitous state of the church in his native country. She had, however, under this trial the satisfaction of reflecting that she had been able to attend him under his last illness, and of witnessing the peace of mind and the hopes of eternal glory which sustained and cheered him on the bed of death. His dying words were noted down by Mr. Robert McWard, who observes that as he, quote, uttered them at several times during his few days' sickness, and as they were gathered from the mem memories of some gracious persons who were present, it will not be expected that they can be set down altogether in that order, liveliness and elegancy of phrase, wherein he had a peculiar happiness as they were spoken by him. End quote. Referring to the cause of his banishment, Caldwell said, I am in perfect peace and quiet of mind. There is no inconsistency between the obeying of God and man. Help, O Lord! We can have no liberty but what is clogged, as we apprehend, with great slavery. If we cannot get living in the world like men, let us be helped to die like men in the avowing of the truth of our God. End quote. He also said, quote, King Charles, we are content to give thee all thine own, but do not, may not, give thee that which is only due unto King Jesus and unto none else. End quote. On another occasion he said, I have forsaken all for thee, O Father, Son, and Blessed Spirit, to whom be praise for ever and ever. End quote. But that it might not be supposed that he built on this his hopes of heaven, he added, quote, Jesus hath paid the price. He hath satisfied his Father's justice to the full. I have laid all over on the cautioner, and he hath assured me that he hath undertaken all for me. He hath overcome. He hath overcome. He will brook his crown in spite of man and devils. End quote. He repeatedly bore testimony to the worth of his wife. One time, on his desiring her to be called for, and it being told him that being very sick she had lain down to rest, he said, quote, Tell her that she and I shall be in heaven forever and ever, and there we shall eat angels' food. End quote. Quote, at another time, being strongly assaulted by the tempter, the Lord having given him great victory, 
over him, as his gracious manner of dealing with him usually was, he cried out, I adjure thee, Satan, unto the bottomless pit to go into everlasting chains into outer darkness where there is weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Then, being a little silent, immediately he cried out, Trouble not Barbara Cunningham, for she is one of God's elect. And again and again, after a little silence, he cried, I say, tempt her not, for she is assuredly an elect vessel. He said further, My faithful spouse, my faithful spouse, most faithful hast thou been unto me, which was his ordinary expression to her and of her. And it blessed the Lord heartily that ever he saw her and was joined unto her. He had often that expression after the most fierce and horrible assaults of Satan, victory, victory, victory forevermore. End quote. Footnote, Wadrill Manuscripts, Volume 68, Folio Number 23. End footnote. McWord pronounces upon him the following econium, quote, And really the death of this precious gentleman is, gentleman is so much the more to be laid to heart and lamented, that as he was such a hopeful and promising instrument for promoting the interest of Christ's kingdom in his station and generation, and had upon mature deliberation and choice very singly and unbiasedly for Christ and the gospel's sake quit and foregone a considerable and ancient inheritance with his native country and the fellowship of all his natural relations except of his lady only, so in as far as could be judged by godly, judicious, and, and sober men in regard to a procuring means the present sad condition of the Church of Scotland and of the work of God therein was the occasion of his death. Such a warm-hearted and kindly sympathizing son of Zion he was, and so sad a lift did he take of that which, alas, many of his mother's children walked too easily and lightly under, though the most accurate observer could never all the while of his sojourning as an exile abroad, nor along his sickness, hear him let so much as one word fall savoring the least, satis satis the least dissatisfaction with or unpleasant resentment of his lot as to outward things. End quote. Footnote. Vodro Manuscripts, Volume 63, Folio Number 23. End footnote. And in a letter to Lady Caldwell, McWard says, quote, he had the care of the church besides all the things that were without and within so much upon his heart that after he had lost houses and lands and country and friends for the interest of his master's glory, as counting all these too little to have lost and too low a signif signification of that love to his master and that zeal of his house which did eat him up, he did by choice sacrifice his very life upon that interest and become one of our greatest and most glorious martyrs. End quote. Footnote. Wadrill Manuscripts. Volume 42, folio number 74. End footnote. On the death of her husband, Lady Caldwell returned to Scotland. Upon her return, she went, it would appear, to take up her residence at Caldwell House and provided herself with new furniture. But in that mansion, she was not permitted long to reside the forfeited estate of Caldwell having been gifted to Dalziel a few months after her husband's death, she was compelled to quit Caldwell House and to seek a home, as she best could find it, for herself and her four fatherless children, three of whom were daughters. And not content with her simple ejectment, Dalziel took away the furniture of Caldwell House, which she had procured, amounting to the value of five hundred merks. Footnote 
This included this is included in the enumeration of her losses during the persecution contained in the libel and the action she and her daughter raised against the grandson of Dalziel before the court of sessions after the revolution. In the same document, the following losses are added. Quote, Item, the sum of 12,000 marks received by the general or his said son or their factors from the respective tenants of the lands for tax in the name of Grassum or entry at Whitsunday, 1671. Item, 6,000 merks received by them for the fewers and vassals of the said estate for entering them and other casualties that occurred during that time. Item, 10,000 merks sustained of damage through the said pursuers, St. Thomas Dalziel's, father demolishing the tower and manor place of Caldwell, the time foresaid, and of the bygone rents of the lands, and others life-rented by the said Barbara Cunningham, and others particularly libeled. From Decrete Absolvitor, Sir Thomas Dalziel of Bins, against the Laird and Lady Caldwell in Proceedings of Parliament, 20th February, 1707, in Acts of the Scottish Parliament, it may here be stated that to make the most of Caldwell's estate, which he had unjustly acquired, Dalziel, quarreling the tax and the, of the tenants as set beneath their true value, instituted a process against the tenants before the Lord's accession for removing them, although they had standing tax of their several rooms granted them long before the forfeiture for years to run. But the case was decided against him. On January 28, 1674, the Lord's of Session discerned that where the tenants were innocent and did not concur in the crime of treason for which Caldwell was forfeited and had but tax of an ordinary endurance, they should stand valid for the years to run after the forfeiture. Morrison's Dictionary of Decisions, pages 4,685 to 4,689. End footnote. She was besides deprived of all visible means of supporting herself and her children, for though by her marriage contract an annual rent jointure suitable to her rank was secured to her from the lands of Caldwell, and she had been actually infested in the estate prior to its forfeiture, yet, as we shall afterwards see, she was deprived of this her just right. Greatly changed were her circumstances now from what they were during the first eight or nine years after her marriage when she lived at Caldwell House in affluence, and day followed day without any cause for worldly care or anxiety. But she was not discouraged. She did not distrust in adversity the God whom she had trusted and served in prosperity. Confiding in his promises, she believed that he would provide for her and hers, and possessing too much self-respect to be dependent for the means of subsistence on the bounty of others, she, with her virtuous children, set themselves diligently to the task of supporting themselves by the labor of their own hands. Nor was she ever burdensome to any person, not even to her nearest relations, and if at times when reduced to straits she was under necessity of applying to them for a temporary loan of money, she afterward thankfully and fully repaid it. Kind friends, whose sympathy was excited by her aff afflicted lot, and who were afraid she might be in pecuniary difficulties, repeatedly offered her money. But her noble spirit of independence shrunk from the acceptance of all such assistance. In reference to a sum of money which some friend in Holland had sent through Mr. Robert McWard of Rotterdam to Mrs. Mr. John Carstairs, 
to be communicated to her. Carstairs, in a letter to McWard, dated February 8, 1678, says, quote, The Lady Caldwell was impersuasible in that matter, though I showed her at her desire from, what, from whom it was, she having never taken from any, of which boasting she is resolved not to be deprived, so long as she is able to live otherwise, which hath made me, after this and some former essays, resolve not to trouble her. She desired me kindly to thank you in her name. I returned the money again to Mr. Watson. End quote. Footnote. Wadrow Manuscripts. Volume 59, folio number 77. End footnote. In this humble condition, Lady Caldwell with her daughters continued for many years struggling for the means of subsistence, but contented and happy, happier far indeed than that barbarous and unprincipled man could possibly be who now wrongfully possessed and had full and unlimited dominion over the manor house, the yards and orchards, the woods and meadows throughout the liberties of Caldwell. To a woman of her independent temper of mind, it would be a high satisfaction to reflect that, though poor, she and her children were a burden to nobody, but she was encouraged and supported by nobler sentiments and more divine consolations. The losses and sufferings she had sustained had been endured in the cause of Christ, and she did not regret having been called to undergo them in so good a cause. She accounted them her crown, her glory. She took joyfully the spoiling of her goods, knowing that she had in heaven a far better and more enduring substance. And in the meantime she had experienced that in proportion as her sufferings for Christ abounded, her consolations in Christ did much more abound. This, in her estimation, was of greater value than the largest earthly re revenue. And the longer she lived, the more strongly was her heart inclined, whatever difficulties and tribulations might intervene and oppose, to, quote, hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. End of quote. Such were the sentiments and feelings to which she gave expression in a letter to Colonel James Wallace, the friend of her husband. This letter has not been preserved, but its import we learn from Colonel Wallace's reply, which, though without date, appears to have been written either in 1677 or 1678, and a portion of it illustrative of the Christian character of Lady Caldwell may here be quoted. Quote, Elect lady and my worthy and dear sister, yours is come to my hand in most acceptable time. It seems that all that devils or men these many years have done, and that has not been little, against you to daunt your courage or to make you, in the avowing of your master and his persecuted interest, to lower your sails, has prevailed so little that your faith and courage are upon the growing hand, an evidence indeed as to your persecutors of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. It seems when you at first by choice took Christ by the hand to be your Lord and portion that you wist what you did, and that notwithstanding of all the hardnesses you have met with in biding by him, your heart seems to cleave the faster to him. This says you have been admitted into much of his company and fellowship. My soul blesses God on your behalf, who hath so carried to you that I think you may take these words among others as spoken to you. You have continued with me in my afflictions. I appoint unto you a kingdom. It seems suffering for Christ, losing anything for him, is to you your glory. 
is to your gain is to you your gain more and more of this spirit may you enjoy that you may be among the few as was said of Caleb and Joshua that follow him fully among the overcomers those noble overcomers mentioned Revelation 2 and 3 among those to whom only as picked out and chosen for that end he is saying ye are my witnesses lady and my dear sister I am of your judgment and I bless his name that ever he counted me worthy to appear in that role end quote he concluded thus quote, let us mind one another my love to all friends whom you know I love in the Lord God's grace be with you and his blessing upon your little ones whom he hath been a father to. End quote. Footnote. McCree's Memoirs of Veach and Bryson, etc., pages 371 to 373. This letter is taken from the Wadrow Manuscripts. It is addressed on the back for the Lady Caldwell at Glasgow. End footnote. As has been said before, though by her marriage contract Lady Caldwell had secured to her from the, ha- from the lands of Caldwell an annual rent jointure and had been actually infested in the estate prior to its forfeiture, she was deprived of this right. Footnote. Sir William Cunningham of Cunningham's Head, in his account of the sufferings of Lady Caldwell, preserved among the Wadrow Manuscripts, volume 33, folio number 57, incorrectly says that she had neglected to take infestment and Wadrow, whose account of her sufferings is taken from that document falls into a similar mistake in his history volume 3 page 440 Fountain Hall says quote Muir of Caldwell being married to Cunningham's daughter in 1657 he infests her in a life rent jointure partly by way of locality and partly in an, an annuity end quote his decisions, etc., page 558. But though she was infested upon her contract of, contract of marriage, her right was not confirmed by the Earl of Eglinton, of whom her husband held immediately his lands. Morrison's Dictionary of Decisions, pages 4690 to 4693. End footnote. As might be expected, Dalziel, instead of respecting her rights, left no means untried to set them aside. In the beginning of the year 1680, as donator to the forfeited estate of Caldwell, he pursued her for males and duties. She defended herself upon the ground of her lifetime infestment. The base artifice with which her defense was met on the part of Dalziel is worthy of notice. Among other things, it was alleged for him first that Lady Caldwell's husband was yet alive, so that her life rent existed not, and secondly, that she herself was in the late rebellion in June 1679. Both allegations were equally untrue. Her husband was not then alive, having died in Holland in 1670, and the slanderous defamation that she was in the rebellion at Bothwell Bridge was doubtless brought forward to injure her cause by creating prejudices against her in the minds of her judges. On her bringing an action against Dalziel before the Lords of Session for her jointure from the forfeited estate, the Lords in November 1682 found that though she had been infested upon her contract of marriage, 
Yet, as her right was not confirmed by the Earl of Eglinton, her husband's immediate superior, footnote, her right was not confirmed by him previous to the forfeiture, though it was confirmed by him during the time of the debate, end footnote. Her right fell under the forfeiture, and that by the forfeiture of a sub-vassal, whether the king's immediate or immediate vassal, not only his own right, but all rights flowing from him were carried. Footnote, Morrison's Dictionary of Decisions, pages 4690 to 4693. End footnote. For a considerable number of years after her return from Holland, Lady Caldwell had not experienced personal annoyance on account of her non-conforming principles, but was allowed without disturbance to pursue the peaceful occupations by which she and her children earned for themselves the means of subsistence. Indeed, considering what she had already suffered in being deprived of all her worldly substance, the government might have been ashamed to subject her to additional hardships and more accumulated sorrow. But arbitrary and persecuting governments are as little affected by a sense of shame as by a sense of justice. In the year 1683, about twelve years after her return from the continent, during which time she had lived in industrious and contented poverty, chiefly, it would appear, at Glasgow, the storm of persecution suddenly burst upon her head. Without indictment or trial, she was made prisoner and confined in one of the state prisoners for upward of three years. The cause of her imprisonment and the hardship she endured during its continuance we shall briefly relate as affording a striking instance of the extreme disregard of justice and the utter heartlessness which characterized the men who administered the affairs of our country in the times of which we write. Footnote Our narrative is taken chiefly from Sir William Cunningham's manuscript's account of Lady Caldwell's sufferings already referred to. It may here be stated that Sir William was not Lady Caldwell's brother, as Dr. Burns in his edition of Wadrow's History supposes, volume 3, page 441, but her brother's son, her brother, as we have seen before, having died in 1670, when he was succeeded by his eldest son, the writer of that account. The son, like the father, was a sufferer in those evil times, even when a schoolboy, incapable of giving much offense or creating much alarm. See Wadrow's History, Volume 2, pages 428 and 429. He married Anne, daughter of Sir Archibald Stuart of Castlemilk, but had no issue, and died in 1724. Robertson's Ayrshire Families, Volume 1, page 308. End footnote. The circumstance in which her imprisonment originated was the false information that a recusant minister had been preaching in her house. To make the narrative intelligible to the reader, it is necessary to state that the house in which she lived, which was in Glasgow, was near the foot and upon the east side of the street called Salt Market, and that the windows consisted mostly of timber boards, there being only a few inches of glass above the boards. One would suppose that it would have been difficult, or rather impossible, for any person from the outside of the street to discover, through the small pieces of glass at the top, what was going on in the interior of the house, but in those days it was no uncommon things for, thing for base individuals, either from pure malignity or in the mercenary hope of reward, to give false informations to the government and their underlings against the persecuted Presbyterians. 
and in the present case a person of this stamp who lived on the opposite side of the street affirmed that one night on looking from his own house on the west side of the street just opposite to her house he saw a minister preaching in her chamber he immediately repaired to the land provost of Glasgow whose name was Barnes a man of known hostility to the Presbyterians and informed him of what he pretended he had seen the provost incited by Mr. Arthur Ross then Archbishop of Glasgow whom he had informed of the case, proceeded so far as to give orders for the apprehension of Lady Caldwell and her three daughters who lived with her, and they were all imprisoned in the tollbooth of Glasgow. This was done, be it observed, before they were convicted of any fault and solely upon the information of a single person whose information might justly be suspected of falsehood it being hardly credible that he could discover by candlelight through two glasses his own window and the few inches of glass which were at the top of hers at the distance of so broad a street a minister preaching in the house had a minister at the time been so engaged in vain was redress to be looked for from the lords of his majesty's privy council for they were the very fountain of oppression the chief instruments for destroying the civil and religious liberties of their country on being informed of the case and probably by the Archbishop of Glasgow the Privy Council not only approved of the illegal proceedings of the Provost of Glasgow but gave orders May 22, 1683 that Lady Caldwell and her eldest daughter Miss Jean should be carried prisoners to the Castle of Blackness by a strong guard the orders were strictly executed and Lady Caldwell continued a prisoner there for a period of more than three years, and her daughter for nearly six months. Had the charge brought against Lady Caldwell been substantiated, had it been proved that at the time specified a non-conforming minister had been preaching in her house, she and her daughter would no doubt have been liable to the severe penalties of the unrighteous and cruel laws then enforced against conventicles by an act of parliament passed in august 1670 outed ministers not licensed by the council and any other persons not authorized by the bishop of the diocese are prohibited from preaching expounding scripture or praying in any meeting except at their own houses and to those of their own family under severe penalties and by the same act it is quote statute and commanded that none be present at any meeting where any not licensed, authorized, nor tolerated, as said is, shall preach, expound scripture, or pray, except the minister's own family. And it is declared that, quote, every person who shall be found to have been present at any such meetings shall be totes, quotes, fined according to their qualities, in the respective sums following, and imprisoned until they pay their fines, and further during the council's pleasure... And if the master or mistress of any family where any such meetings shall be kept be present within the house for the time, they are to be fined in the double of what is to be paid for them by them for being present at a house conventicle. End quote. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 2, page 169. Footnote concerning Blackness Castle, where they were imprisoned. Blackness Castle is an ancient royal fortress in the parish of Caradan, Limithgoshire. It is situated at the eastern extremity of the parish, 
on the south side of the Firth of Forth on a rocky promontory projecting into the Firth. It is built in the form of a ship and is one of the oldest fortifications of Scotland, being a regular fort of four bastions, which, along with the fortifications on the small island of Inchgarvie, seems completely to command the passage of the Forth to go Stirling, to Stirling. It is one of the four ancient national fortresses that, by the Articles of Union, are required to be kept in constant repair, the other three being the castles of Edinburgh, Stirling, and Dumbarton. The period of its erection is unknown. During the struggle between Presbytery and Prelacy in the reign of James VI, it was used as a place of confinement for those ministers and laymen who had become obnoxious to the government for their assertion of the principles of religious liberty. Here Mr. John Welsh, Minister of Air, and five other ministers were, for holding a general assembly at Aberdeen in July 1605, in opposition to the wishes of the monarch, confined from August that year till toward the close of the following year, when they were banished the king's dominions not to return upon the pain of death. The dungeon in which Welsh was immured is still pointed out. It is the lower cell on the west part of the building. The visitor who enters it is enabled to form some idea of what our forefathers suffered in the cause of civil and religious freedom. It is of small dimensions. The floor is the bare, unequal rock on which one can neither stand nor walk with any measure of comfort, and the only means by which light and air are admitted is a chink in the wall. Blackness Castle was at length allowed to fall into disrepair, but as the persecution of Charles II advanced to find room for the Whig prisoners, it was again fitted up as a place of confinement. Quote, 24th June, 1677. The council wrote a letter to His Majesty desiring he would be pleased to grant warrant to his treasury for lifting up as much money as will repair the castle of blackness for holding prisoners, the bass being already full. His Majesty sent down a warrant conform. End quote. Fountain Hall's Historical Notices, page 169. Blackness Castle was repaired in the year 1679. Quote, designed, says Rowe, to be a prison as formerly under the old bishops. End quote. Life of Robert Blair, page 567. And within its gloomy walls many covenanters were immured for years. In a dungeon still called the Whig's Vault, a dozen or a score of them, according to tradition, would sometimes be confined together as so many cattle. End footnote. And in an Act of Parliament, June 1672, in reference to the part of the preceding Act which prohibits non-conforming ministers not licensed by the Council or not having authority from the Bishop of the Diocese, quote, from preaching, expounding scripture, or praying in any meeting except in their own houses and to those of their own family, unquote, it is said, quote, since there may be some questions and doubts concerning the meaning and extent of that word pray, his majesty doth with advice foresaid declare that it is not to be understood as if thereby prayer and families were discharged by persons of the family, and such as shall be present not exceeding the number of four persons besides those of the family, but it is always declared that this act doth not give allowance to any outed minister to pray in any families except in the parishes where they be allowed to preach. End quote. Footnote. Quadro's History, Volume 2, page 169. 
End footnote. Even the indulged ministers could not, according to the Acts of the Indulgence, September 1672, have preached in the private house of a friend without involving themselves and their hearers in the violation of these laws. And they were laws still in force insofar as Glasgow was concerned. For although a proclamation suspending the laws against house conventicles on the south side of the River Tay was issued, dated June 29, 1679, Quote, the town of Edinburgh and two miles around it with the lordships of Musselboro and Dalkeith, the cities of St. Andrews and Glasgow and Stirling and a mile about each of them, unquote, are accepted. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 3, page 149, but even as to house conventicles, as Fountain Hall informs us, the council afterward found that notwithstanding this proclamation of indulgence, they might be punished and fined unless licensed by the council, that the king's indulgence had not permitted them, but only where, upon application to the council, they are established. Historical Notices of Scottish Affairs, page 244. End footnote. Had Lady Caldwell and her daughter then been convicted of the charge brought against them, they would, according to the iniquitous laws then enforced, have been liable to be fined, and failing to pay their fines, to be imprisoned. Footnote. Sir William Cunningham, in his account of Lady Caldwell's sufferings, speaking of her daughter, Miss Jean, indeed, says, Yea, though the matter of fact as alleged had, had been true, what law even then could make the poor gentlewoman of twenty years of age liable to such cruel treatment, she being in her mother's house where, though there had been sermon, yet by law it ought to have been proven that there were five more than the family present to hear it, whereas it was never pretended that there were any more present than the lady and her family. Bodro makes the same statement, but both are mistaken. It would have been illegal as is evident from the Acts of Parliament quoted in the text, for a non-conforming minister to have preached in Lady Caldwell's house, though none but the members of her family had been present. End footnote. But they were not convicted of the breach of any law. Their imprisonment was therefore illegal. Presbyterian ministers were indeed in the habit of paying visits to Lady Caldwell and they frequently preached in her house, but this was never proved. And in reference to the particular charge on the ground of which she was imprisoned, she always denied that at the time specified by her accuser any person was preaching in her house, and the contrary was never established against her. No attempt was indeed made to prove the charge. The very forms of law were disregarded. No judicial procedure was gone through. A summary and arbitrary course, which bore injustice on its very front, was adopted, a course naturally tending to destroy all security of personal liberty and to beget universal distrust, for anyone might have been arrested upon a similar charge and, however innocent, have been consigned to a dungeon. The treatment of Lady Caldwell and her eldest daughter was not only illegal and tyrannical, it was also barbarously cruel. It was robbing of her liberty, a lady who had nothing else under God but the fruits of her own industry, to support herself and her children, and against whom nothing could be found by her persecutors, save only that, quote, after the way which they called heresy, she worshipped the God of her fathers, end quote. When brought to the castle of Blackness, 
she and her daughter were kept close prisoners, except that the governor, who was disposed to favor them sometimes, though at his peril, allowed them to visit his lady, whose room was immediately below the cell in which they were confined. The society of the two captives would serve in some degree to relieve the tedious hours of their imprisonment. But after the lapse of nearly six months, footnote, Sir William Cunningham says a year and some more, and Wadrow says for near a year's time, but from the date of the order of the council for her liberation compared with the date of the act of council ordering her imprisonment, it is evident that the period of her imprisonment was somewhat less than six months. End footnote. After the lapse of nearly six months, Miss Jean, who was only about twenty years of age, began to suffer in her health in consequence of her close confinement, which excited painful apprehensions in her mother, whose sense of her own sufferings was for the time absorbed in the deep and distressing concern which she felt for her afflicted daughter. Lady Caldwell, having conveyed to some of her relations information respecting the indisposition of Miss Jean, and begged them to interpose their kind assistance for obtaining her release for the recovery of her health, application was made to the Privy Council by several of her relations for the liberation of the two ladies, or at least for the liberation of the indisposed daughter. After much trouble and no small expense, an order was at last obtained for the latter being set at liberty. In answer to a petition which she presented to Privy Council to that effect, accompanied with the testimonials of physicians as to her ill health, the following act of Council was passed. Quote, 11th September, 1683. The Lords of His Majesty's Privy Council, having heard and considered a petition presented by Jean Muir, prisoner in the castle of blackness for several alleged irregularities and disorders and in regard of her present sickness and indisposition testified under the hands of physicians supplicating for liberty to hereby give order and warrant to the Earl of Linlithgow governor of the said castle of blackness and his deputies there to set the said Jean Muir petitioner at liberty in regard of her present indisposition and sickness and that she hath found sufficient caution, acted in the books of Privy Council, that she shall re-enter her person in prison within the said castle of blackness upon the first day of November next, under the penalty of one thousand mercs. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, 
T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.